The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. When you're talking about the subject of hermeneutics and inerrancy, um, I'm going to be presupposing, for the most part, that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. That, of course, is a topic that uh, we could spend uh, more than one hour on and would well warrant that discussion, but that would simply be the topic of inerrancy, and that isn't the topic that uh, I've been assigned. So we're going to be discussing the relationship of two different er areas, and I'm going to be assuming things that um, in other contexts I wouldn't have a right to assume, that is, of our talking to certain people who didn't agree with me, but I'm going to be assuming that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, that it is what God says to us, it is God's own speech, and because God doesn't lie, it is completely true. And I'm going to be assuming that the Bible needs interpretation. Uh, I mentioned in my prayer already that the Bible was clear. It is clear about those things which are important to our salvation. Even the ordinary person can come to an understanding of them. Uh, that follows from a large number of passages of Scripture. I might even, uh, well, I'll just uh, confine myself here to alluding to the book of Proverbs where it talks about the, uh, the Word of God making wise the simple. Uh, so that it isn't only for those who are already wise. Uh, it's for the simple as well. Now, what about the relationship of these two areas of the challenge of interpreting the Bible, that is, of uh, coming to a correct understanding of it, of being able to explain that also convincingly to someone else, and that relationship of that to the inerrancy of the Word of God? Well, one possible answer is that there is no particular relation between those two. And uh, actually, I'm quite sympathetic with this answer, and so maybe we can close up shop uh, in a few minutes, but there's more to it. But uh, why might someone say that? Well, hermeneutics, or theory of interpretation, is concerned with determining the meaning or import of any particular text, in this case, a text of the Bible. Whereas inerrancy, the affirmation that the Bible is inerrant, is concerned with deciding whether that particular text is true. And those are two different things. You can imagine uh, if you were concerned with literature other than the Bible, that you might spend a good deal of time discussing how it's to be interpreted, how we're to um, discern the meaning <clears throat> of the author. And then we might spend a big, great deal of time talking about whether what the author says is, is true. All right, and those two things are, uh, in effect, separate discussions. And in fact, there can be a, a baneful influence, uh, a bad influence, from people who try to bring 
these two uh, concerns of hermeneutics and inerrancy together too fast, too rapidly, too naively, if you will. For instance, uh, they, they might suppose that in the process of interpretation, you are actually <clears throat> determining the truth value of the text. That would be a way in which you could, you could say hermeneutics takes over everything, all right? In the process of determining meaning, uh, you're also uh, determining the truth value. But of course, the text is true or not true, uh, if I'm thinking about literature other than the Bible as well now. It's there either saying what is true or saying what is not true even before you start interpreting it, all right? So it's not as if we are determining the meaning of the text. It's not as if we are decreeing what's the meaning of the, t or the truth of the text, sorry. <clears throat> but rather, we are in our own minds perhaps making up our mind about its truth value, but even that is not quite the same as making up our mind what it means. Uh, secondly, you can imagine a kind of uh, uh, over-influence or bad influence in the other direction. Uh, people who firmly believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God may uh, attach certain connotations to that word inerrancy, which in fact don't hold true. Um, as a matter of fact, though I think inerrancy is a good word, there are some uh, people who would want to be classified as evangelicals today who are uncomfortable with that word. Uh, some of their discomfort I don't think is uh, legitimate, but uh, they would uh, say that inerrancy tends to convey along with it the idea of a scientific precision. And uh, for all I know, that may be the case for some people, uh, in which case I, when I try to communicate about the subject, I would have to explain what I mean. And I think that affirming, when I say the Bible is inerrant, what I, I do not mean that it is necessarily scientifically precise. Uh, we can say um, so-and-so is uh, only five feet tall, all right? And uh, if I say that, what I, can, what I say can be perfectly true if he is five feet and three-quarters inches. All right, I was, not, I was not as precise as I could be, but there was nothing untrue about what I said. All right? And likewise, the Bible and God himself has the right not to say everything to us. He can say what's true without saying everything. He can say what's true without uh, being infinitely precise. <clears throat> so the word inerrant applied to the Bible, as I use it at any rate, means simply that whatever the Bible says on any subject whatsoever, whatever it says that bears on any subject, is completely true. It is without error, error being the opposite of truth. But that does not imply then that it is necessarily some scientific genre, that it will commit itself where you just have to read and find out how precise God chooses to be in what he communicates to us. <clears throat> Okay, so the point is that inerrancy could be construed as implying some hermeneutical pre-commitment. I, I set up an expectation, in other words, when I'm reading the text, that it's going to be scientifically precise, and that would be a mistake. Although, on the other hand, I don't, ex I don't want to set up an expectation that it's just going to be completely vague either. <laughs> I want to read it and give it, um, <clears throat> and give it the uh, right to 
uh, choose for, or give God the right to choose whatever genre, that is whatever kind of uh, communication, whether it's uh, communicating history, telling a parable, uh, writing a poem uh, such as in the Psalms or, or uh, teaching doctrine. Now, <clears throat> beyond that, you might say, well, we've, we've done uh, a few things that don't get us very far. All we said is that uh, the two uh, areas aren't related to one another. And uh, now I'm going to warm up a little bit to the subject and show some ways in which at least they interact. Uh, first of all, uh, if you believe that the Bible is inerrant, you are in effect saying, deciding beforehand for any particular text of the Bible that that text is true. Now this is one move in the process of interpretation, all right? It is believing that I'll just pick a text out of the air. Malachi 3.1 is true. Now, uh, that, there can be a little problem, of course, with that because uh, Malachi 3.1 may not be a statement. It might be a question. It might be a quotation of the of devil speech for all, all we know. It isn't, but uh, uh, there are some passages in the Bible that are that. And, of course, uh, and what you say then is what the Bible affirms the devil said, the devil actually said, uh, not that... The, the devil's words are themselves true, okay? So <clears throat> there's nothing really very problematic about that. But uh, we have a commitment beforehand then to say, even before I look at this particular text, and maybe I'm a, a new Christian and I've never even read it, then I should, I may of course be weak uh, in my confidence in, in God's word at that point. I may not have decided that all the Bible is God's word, but at least I should believe beforehand, even before I've read the text, that whatever it says is true, and then I engage in an interpretive process where I'm deciding or trying to uh, discern uh, what the text says, the text says, okay? And there are many similarities at that stage with what I would do with any piece of literature, not in every respect, and we'll get to some of that, but in many respects it is similar to interpretation of other uh, literature simply that is of human origin. And then there's a third step, although I don't want to rigidly isolate these, of deciding what to do about it. And that will include things like believing what it claims or promises and uh, acting on what it commands and uh, maybe absorbing some of the uh, emotional uh, example it gives us in a, in a passage from the Psalms, there are other kinds of reaction that would be called for depending on what kind of communication this particular passage is. Now, there are complexities here which I don't want to get into for the minute uh, in that, uh, for, for instance, if you read in the Old Testament, you'll see uh, you're commanded not to eat uh, pork, not to eat certain kinds of, uh, well, shrimp and, and uh, other seafood and so on. 
Uh, ought we to go out and obey that? Well, you have to understand who that commandment is directed to. It's directed to the Israelites in the first place and not to us. Now, it's valuable to us. It has bearing on us, but not the bearing that a naive reader might suppose uh, because of the way in which the Israelites in that particular era of history were unique. We're not in that era, and God is not asking us to do the same thing as he asked them to do, but he genuinely did ask them to do it, and if we were in that situation, we would have been obliged to do it. So interpreting what it commands, there can be some difficulty and, and uh, complexity to that. Now, um, the point which I want to, well, one of the questions which arises is, uh, back in here, you see this, these two steps of believing are not really the same. Here, you don't know what Malachi 3.1 says, and you presuppose beforehand that it is, whatever it says is true. Then you have a process of finding out what it means, and then, uh, of course, once you know what it means, then you are committed to believing whatever specific thing it says. But someone might object, well, isn't this uh, um, uh, really uh, a leap in the, in the dark? Uh, how can any sane person say, I'm going to believe whatever something says uh, before he's even heard what it says? Uh, isn't that the sort of blindest kind of commitment? Well, it would be if we didn't know anything about who was doing the same. And, uh, it, but in fact, this thing is a much less, uh, I think uh, in, the, in the modern context, there are many modernists, people who are no longer committed to the inerrancy of the Bible, and they could uh, uh, present uh, a, a very um, scathing criticism of this kind of thing as, as, pre, as immature and childish and so on. But uh, really, the matter is uh, something that they're familiar with every day of their lives because we are all accustomed to relying on testimony, uh, not only in the courtroom, the formal kind of sense, but someone, <coughs> one of our friends, tells us something. And it may be something that has important bearing on our lives. Now, all the time, we're making decisions, not consciously, but we're making decisions about what we are going to believe about that kind of thing. If the person who gives us this testimony, who gives us this information, we know to be a reliable uh, person, then it is rational, it is the right thing to do to accept that person's testimony at face value. Of course, we know the person is a human being, he is fallible, and, and so on, so there would always be a qualification, even for somebody we trust. But nevertheless, we, we're familiar with that process, and no one, including in science, or maybe especially science, can get by without that kind of uh, constant evaluation of other people's, what other people say. Now, in the case of the Bible, you see, the, the commitment back here is not in a vacuum. Even if we don't know what Malachi 3.1 says, we know from having studied other parts of the Bible, from having seen what God did in the person of Christ and his death and resurrection, we know or have become convinced on the basis of evidence that is really out there, that God is reliable, and not reliable uh, even only in the sense that a human being might be reliable, because uh, whereas a human being has the limitations of his finiteness, his uh, lack of exhaustive knowledge, and so on, God has, does not have those limitations. So uh, God is completely trustworthy, and we trust him even before 
we know the meaning of the text. Now, this comes to bear in a very meaningful way in cases that present difficulties in Scripture. Um, what I'm thinking of partly is um, cases where, and we may have time to discuss one, one uh, two different Gospels give what appears to be two different accounts of the same event. Uh, I might as well introduce uh, the particular event that we're going to use as an example. Luke 7, 1 to 10, speaks of a uh, centurion whose slave is sick. And the centurion um, sends elders of the Jews to Jesus to ask him to come and heal the slave. And you may remember the account, Luke 7, 1 to 10. Uh, I'll write it. One to ten, and there's a parallel in Matthew eight five to thirteen. Uh, centurion sends uh, the Jews. Jesus starts on his way. Centurion uh, evidently has second thoughts. We're not told what goes on in his mind, but he sends friends, saying, "Lord, do not trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but say the word." and let my servant be healed. And the story goes on that the slave is healed. Now Matthew has a very uh, similar account in which a centurion comes to Jesus. And uh, there's no mention of these, these intermediaries of the elders of the Jews coming and then the friends coming. Uh, well, isn't that a contradiction then? Either, either the centurion uh, uh, communicated with Jesus through these elders or he did not. And so there were people who would uh, say, look at this. Uh, here is an obvious mistake. Somebody made a mistake. It doesn't uh, perhaps take away from the main point, they would say, you know, if they want to sound uh, attractive and nice. And, uh, but basically, it's a mistake in detail, and it means that we uh, must uh, retain a certain critical stance over against what the Bible says, all right? Now, uh, I'm going to have more to say about this particular uh, incident. But uh, for the moment, I want to use it as an illustration of this kind of thing, of saying maybe I can't arrive at a solution, although this particular one, I, I don't think it's too hard to work out uh, what is going on and to see that the counts are not really contradictory. But we're not guaranteed by God that in every case, we, as human beings, would be able to see through to a solution of some of these. Now, the basic important teachings of God are clear enough, and we can work through to a solution uh, in terms of understanding those. But when we come to uh, what is really a detail of the Bible's message, did the centurion send these uh, uh, intermediaries or not, we may not always with our finite knowledge be able to arrive at a solution and that and at that point we're back here you see we have struggled perhaps to determine the meaning of the text and maybe we have not come up with a satisfactory meaning which would confirm uh, inerrancy that is a signal that we still need to do more work on this although we might not have enough information to ever come up with uh, what the passage is really saying in some cases. Uh, I think those cases are rare, but uh, they may exist, all right? And uh, well, seminary is a place where you do get lots of answers, uh, and you know where, you find out where to look up uh, uh, further answers even. 
uh, and there are, there's room in the church, you see, for uh, pastors who are better educated, who can help people get a lot of answers. But when it comes down to where the rubber meets the road and you uh, are working with one of these things, you don't have an ironclad guarantee that you will be able to come up with the answer, <laughs> not in every case. But even in those cases, you see, I think on the basis of uh, this, uh, the familiar thing of, of human testimony even, and the fact that the Bible is uh, said within its own pages, claims to be the testimony of God, that we are uh, justified in holding it to be true. But then also there is, uh, as it were, after you have arrived at the meaning of the text, a further step of deciding, what do I do about it? If then it is true, I'm constrained in certain ways. I'm obliged to respond to God in belief and commitment. Now, those are some of the most, uh, the easy ways in which hermeneutics and inerrancy are related to one another. But now I want to talk about the fact that these three stages that I've distinguished, you see I had this one of belief beforehand, and two of interpretation, and three of application. Those three are not completely independent of one another, even uh, in spite of the fact that I've put them up there and I've tried to uh, uh, isolate them a little bit so we could see what's going on, yet they're really not independent. They interact with one another. And we've seen that a little bit even in the fact that if at this stage you come up with an interpretation where you find an actual contradiction between what you think passage A means and what you think passage B means, you know that your interpretation of at least one of the passages can't be right. Now that doesn't enable you to arrive at a solution always, but uh, it is a point at which the uh, two areas interact. Now I want to say about uh, something about ways in which evangelicals and sort of semi-evangelicals, uh, if I may confine things to, to positions which I think people in this room would find more attractive, uh, what ways they have taken to deal with the, more, the broader sense of interaction, this kind of thing of what do I do when there are problems. Now, on the one hand, there is a kind of left-wing evangelical approach which is characterized by uh, a kind of non-harmonization, that is, of saying, with this case of the centurion or other cases, of saying, just let those things stand side by side. Uh, a respect the integrity of what is being said in each individual place. Don't try to distort it. Don't try to, to manipulate it to somehow uh, force the things to agree with one another. Now, you can see there is a certain point being made there that even when we, are, we see that there are difficulties in understanding the Bible, we must respect the fact that the Bible is God's word. It's not there to simply be manipulated into a mold. Uh, even when we might feel, you know, uh, uh, it can become a little bit excruciating if you're dealing with a non-Christian who comes to you with this kind of objection. You feel so much how I would like to give a solution to this because it would vindicate God's own name if I did. But even there, I think, we must realize that uh, part of the problem often is the non-Christian is assuming I can bring God to my bar of justice, you know, and God's got to answer to me in whatever kind of questions I raise. 
And uh, those, in fact, are not always the important questions. And uh, partly the guy has to be challenged to say, look, you're a sinner. And uh, what right do you have to take up this stance of, of uh, judgment over God? Now, it's sometimes hard to communicate that, I think, in a meaningful way to a non-Christian. I don't think we uh, get very far beating them overhead. But uh, often there are other issues than, than just deciding some kind of harmonization question. Now, actually, those things are often thrown up, I think, by people who don't really care, but are, uh, are using them as a smokescreen to avoid the real issue, which is their rebellion and their sin. Not always. Uh, and uh, the issue of communicating with a non-Christian can be a very complicated one that takes all the Christian wisdom that God gives us. Okay, so non-harmonization, just let those passages stand side by side, or in fact, often, what I would characterize as anti-harmonization. Uh, people who re revel in finding differences, which at best would be differences of emphasis, differences of approach, and I think that too can be valuable. Uh, God used several different human authors in scripture, and there's a diversity there that is a beautiful diversity. And yet I think often it is that within the realm of modern scholarship carried to an extreme of saying, uh, uh, let's find uh, virtual contradictions wherever we can. And, uh, and uh, different New Testament writers being opposed to one another in what I sometimes think is a very artificial way, uh, especially because the New Testament writers themselves said, well, for instance, Paul at one point says, well, this is what we all proclaim, referring to the other apostles. And uh, so people will talk about Johannine theology and Petrine theology and so on, and there's some degree of truth in that. Uh, but it isn't as if uh, Paul saw himself as contradicting the other apostles at any point, and so people who do are misinterpreting Paul <laughs> right off. Uh, and uh, so there is, uh, there is, on the one hand, uh, a, a view that in its desire to respect the integrity of each particular text resists any movement towards harmonization. Or you may take the, another example, Genesis 1 and 2. It's a very famous example. Many people will say there are two different accounts of creation here. Uh, uh, pre, one written by uh, priestly circle and uh, one by so-called Yahweh circle is a more um, narrative and uh, those two are, are in contradiction. You just let them stand side by side and see what each has to say, try to learn from them both. But uh, harmonization is the wrong way to go, they will say. Well, I don't agree with that because we've got a single divine author for one thing. Uh, as well as this fact that even the human authors uh, claim to be in harmony with what other human authors are doing. But we've got a single divine author, and uh, the complexities arise because God's mind is larger than ours, you see. So harmonization is not always easy. There's something to be learned from people who are resisting artificial attempts to smash together two texts to pretend that they say, something that they don't say in order to achieve harmony right away. But uh, it's uh, because God's mind is larger than ours, we may not uh, uh, always uh, achieve, uh, do justice to God's word by the simplest possible uh, harmonization. On the other hand, there is the right wing, and that's the forced harmonization option that I've 
described, and often harmonization not only of one text with another, but also of texts here and there with my current beliefs. And this is always a temptation for us, I think, when we realize if we are committed to this area of application to our lives, of believing it ourselves, it can, in some ways can make it harder for us to really admit that the Bible says what it says. <laughs> there are certain things that it says that are difficult for the natural man to swallow. And uh, if we believe in Christ, we're no longer natural men. But there may still be sinful resistances here and there to things that God is saying. Whereas somebody who is much more, uh, what shall I say, casual uh, about the Bible, who, say, who thinks, well, I don't have to believe everything it says, uh, occasionally he will actually be more honest about what it does say. <laughs> because, because uh, uh, you know, he can admit it without that uh, requiring some psychological and personal change on his own part. So you can see that we can get involved in difficulties, any of us, but I think the right wing of the, among evangelicals, that is the wing that is strongly committed to inerrancy, this is the particular sin that they're in danger of often. Uh, so not only will particular texts be forced into harmony with an, one another, sometimes a little bit dishonestly, but also texts are brought too quickly into harmony with my current beliefs. Uh, if I believe that uh, card playing is wrong or that all interracial marriage is wrong, I can uh, call the Bible for texts here and there trying to find something willy-nilly which will support or confirm or at least harmonize with uh, my position, you see. And, uh, and you, the, there are people of course, around who are committed to those things and think the Bible teaches them. I don't think you can find those things in the Bible. Although you might say some instances of interracial marriage, some instances of card playing are wrong depending on the circumstances, but that's a very different thing. So you've got a right wing, all right, where uh, the danger is, uh, and uh, because they're, precisely because they're committed here, of uh, not being responsible interpreters, of uh, twisting text to make them say what they want them to say. Although, incidentally, uh, the, the, the modernists, and James Barr has written a book on fundamentalism where uh, he criticizes evangelicals for this very thing, that, uh, that their interpretation of individual passages is, is less rigorous, is less honest, ultimately, than that of modernists who can make who can let each passage speak for itself. And uh, there's a certain amount of truth, I think, in Barr's criticism. On the other hand, uh, modernists are often no better. <laughs> uh, even though they're not committed to, uh, uh, or perhaps in, in some respects because they're not committed, but even though they're not committed to believing what a particular text say, they still want it to uh, confirm what they would uh, like to believe themselves. So uh, the problem is not unique to people who are committed to inerrancy. Let me read as a summary of this kind of um, problem uh, a little uh, piece which uh, is really about a paragraph which I wrote in talking about uh, I. Howard Marshall's uh, volume, New Testament Interpretation, which was 
uh, one of the more mature evangelical approaches. And I said, over the last few years, evangelical scholarly discussion of the nature of biblical trustworthiness and inerrancy has taken on more and more a hermeneutical cast. Now, I said that because, of course, a whole bunch of people out there may be committed, in, in theory, to the inerrancy of the Bible. They may say, we believe the Bible is inerrant. But to put teeth into that, you've also got to specify a little bit how you interpret the Bible. Because you may say the Bible is inerrant, but then uh, have such wild interpretations of passages that your affirmation is vitiated. You may think of, for instance, Jehovah's Witnesses, who are very uh, powerful in saying the Bible is inerrant, uh, but uh, who are trained in a certain kind of manipulation of the Bible, such that they vitiate a large amount of the power of that inerrancy. More people are aware of the insufficiency of a bare subscription to biblical infallibility. Apart from hermeneutical guidelines, infallibility can mean too many things. On the right wing of evangelicalism, the blinders of traditionalism, okay, the people who are just stuck uh, defending what they've always believed, the blinders of traditionalism, dogmatism, and allegorism sometimes vitiate the apparent power of a firm, formal adherence to inerrancy. Uh, that's the kind of thing I've described. Uh, on the left wing, an elaborate hermeneutical apparatus can so qualify the text in terms of a supposed first century context that its ability to criticize modern assumptions is vitiated. Okay, so the, there is the real challenge, the interaction of those two areas on one another. Now let me say something about divine speech in particular. I think the problems that we've been uh, thinking about can be related to what is perceived by many people as a tension between divine speech and human speech, that tension being visible when we do hermeneutics. And if I may give an example here, Matthew 2.11 speaks of the wise men who came uh, to Jesus um, as a child, and they had gifts of gold frankincense, and myrrh. I had one man tell me that gold, frankincense, and myrrh in this passage stood for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, that is an instance he would never have uh, done such a thing with a piece of secular literature. It's an instance of the fact where he thought that divine authorship, the fact that God was writing this, must mean that he could expect some kind of mysterious meanings to be behind the text, perhaps having nothing to do with what the text was saying on its surface. Okay? Now, um, on the other hand, if you read the book in terms of its human author and you ask uh, Matthew, um, I don't really know for absolute certainty that the Apostle Matthew wrote it, because uh, the book nowhere says that, but uh, I assume that's the case. Uh, Matthew, in writing this, why did he mention that? Why did he bring it up? Well, perhaps just because that's what the wise men brought, but of course he could have written the thing not mentioning, he could have said that they brought gifts without mentioning what they were. 
so it, it's, it's really uh, becomes near to speculation of saying just why he included it. But uh, you can get a little closer to the matter if you ask, what, what could you expect the readers to gather from that? And uh, Matthew is written particularly to Jewish uh, audience, people with familiarity with the Old Testament. He uses a lot of material from the Old Testament. And those type of people would have been familiar with Isaiah 60, verse 6, which speaks of the time uh, of the fulfillment of God's purposes for Abraham and for the world. Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord arises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. This is the time, then, of the appearance of the glory of God over his people. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. It is the time where the light then extends to other nations beyond Israel. The promise made to Abraham that all nations would find blessing in him is fulfilled. And then verse 6 says, Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, that is, other nations are going to be bringing their riches, and all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. I see, I think a, uh, in a book like Matthew where you're heavily related to the Old Testament, this is the thing that is going to come to mind. Whether Matthew had it consciously in mind, uh, we may not know for sure. And at that point, of course, we could make a transition over to the divine author and say uh, God not only had that in mind when he enabled Matthew to write what he did, but when he wrote Isaiah 60, <laughs> he also knew what he would make of that passage later on in Matthew's time. All right, so there is, a, a, there is an extra factor added by the divine authorship that we know that God knew from the beginning uh, what the texts were going to apply to uh, when Christ would come. But you see, what I'm doing is um, a kind of approach which says God didn't use somebody like Matthew as uh, a pure automaton where he just dictated things where Matthew had no real involvement in. Uh, God is not writing to us things that are coded in such a way that we must uh, somehow seek for a meaning that has no relationship to what it meant to the human author. All right? the, gold, frankincense, myrrh, standing for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That isn't what it's about. And the unfortunate thing about this man who told me this is that he is going to find the same meaning in every passage of the Bible. It's a true meaning. I mean, there, there is the Trinitarian nature of God, but he's not going to learn anything new. He's not going to learn what God was telling him in this specific passage uh, the, about the fulfillment of this, uh, or at least the inauguration of the coming of other nations to worship the Messiah. So he's missed out, you see, on something. And he's missed out, I think, by not appreciating the way in which God uses human authors, the way in which God uh, speaks to us where we are in ordinary language. And that implies also, it sort of works back on this business of is the Bible infinitely precise? Is it scientifically precise? 
And I'd say in general, no, although we can't predict beforehand whether God for certain purposes might not have some part of the Bible which would be very precise. We just gotta uh, look and read. But God is interested in speaking to us as people who are whole people and who don't need to know only uh, sort of uh, scientific information that will tickle our fancy or, or answer all our questions. We need to be saved and that's, there's a central focus then in what God has to say. Now that also sets up certain expectations uh, about a passage like this one of the centurion and his slave. What do we do about that kind of thing? And I think uh, there it is well to invoke another principle that you see operating in quite a few cases in the gospel accounts in particular and that is omission of detail. It's of the nature of historical writing that it is not exhaustive. And it's the nature of historical writing, whether it's done by God or by human beings, to be very selective. To be much more selective, in fact, than a kind of television camera would be, because a visual picture is inevitably includes many more details than a verbal account does. If you have a verbal account and you mention that the blind man was healed, you don't know unless the passage tells you whether Jesus touched him, whether the disciples were looking on, whether the disciples had some comments among themselves, uh, how the, how, what kind of expression the blind man had on his face, whether there was another blind man who was healed. Incidentally, I think that's a, a, the best reconciliation of, uh, of another problem. And uh, this particular instance, I think, uh, the fact is that the omission of the mention of messengers does not imply that there were no messengers, particularly because in the first century world it was understood that a messenger could be commissioned with the authority of the person who commissioned him. This was a common practice, sort of like an ambassador of a country. When the ambassador speaks, he doesn't speak simply as a private person, I mean when he speaks in his official capacity, but he has the commitment of the country himself behind him. So uh, he can say, the president says X, you see, and, and somebody else could say, well, uh, the president of the United States says so-and-so, and he would not be say, saying something falsely. So I think what's going on is in the Matthean account, the mention of messengers is omitted. Now, uh, besides that, uh, there are things, I think, to be learned about the point, to, to ask not merely how we can harmonize two accounts like this, but also what is going on, what is the effect of, of God telling us the story in both ways, or of one way in one place and one way in another place. And I think the effect is subtly different. And we haven't got time to uh, go into this in detail, but in the Gospel of Matthew, where the messengers are not mentioned, the a Gentile character of the centurion stands in the foreground. And Matthew is very interested, the rest of the Gospel, is very interested in the Jew-Gentile problem and the rejection of the Jews. That the kingdom has come to the Jews in Christ and they rejected him. And uh, Christ at one point in the Gospel of Matthew says, uh, the, that the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a nation that bears fruit. That's said only in the Gospel of Matthew, not in any of the other Gospels. Uh, 
So Matthew is very interested in that particular thing. You can see why he reinforces that. Not that he wouldn't admit, presumably, that there were Jewish intermediaries, there were these Jewish elders, but that bringing that in tends to take the focus, the spotlight, off of the point that Matthew wants to make. Namely, here's a Gentile who shows his great faith, you see, when all the Jews are so unbelieving. And that's a prefigurement of the fact of what's going to happen at the end of the gospel. Christ is rejected and crucified, and then he says go to the disciples, and go and make disciples of all nations, you see. So it's all building up to a certain kind of uh, slant that Matthew, as a human author, but also God, wants to, us to see and is arranging us to see certain things as emphasized in his account in the Gospel of Matthew. On the other hand, what about Luke? Well, in Luke, by mentioning the messengers, Luke highlights the centurion's humility. Because you may remember the centurion says, uh, and when he sends the friends, Lord, uh, don't trouble yourself. I didn't come to you myself because I wasn't worthy to have you come under my roof. And uh, see, his unworthiness is, is seen, or his feeling of unworthiness is seen. First of all, he has the elders of the Jews. I'm a Gentile. What can I claim? You know, here are people who are, are, are uh, the leaders of the people of God. Uh, they can uh, help me where I couldn't make the claim myself. And then later the friend saying, no, don't come under my roof. I'm not worthy for that. So this, the humility and the, uh, of the centurion comes out. And Luke is very interested in his whole gospel in the way in which the gospel comes to the poor, to the meek, to those who can make no claim on God or man in human terms. Now you see, um, what I'm uh, illustrating by this is a kind of combination. That there is something to be learned from the people who struggle the hardest to do harmonization, the right wing inerrantists. Namely that as you struggle, you can often come through to see, yes, there is a reconciliation here. It's simply one, in this case, one account admitted a fact or the other didn't. On the other hand, there is something to be learned from the people who say, let's resist doing the harmonization too quickly. Let's find out what each passage is saying in its own integrity, in its own context. Try to do justice to that without first of all, manipulating the thing. You've probably had people uh, preach to you uh, on something like this passage of the centurion's uh, slave and go right away into a combination uh, of uh, figuring out everything that they can about what happened on the basis of all the gospel texts. Well, there's nothing the matter with that as such because we do want to figure out all that God has told us in all of Scripture and yet, if they do that too quickly, they sometimes will miss some of these particular nuances of, of uh, God saying in one place, look at the centurion's humility here and how the good news is coming to those who have no claim. And then he's saying in the Gospel of Matthew, look at how the Gentile belief contrasts with the unbelief of these Jews who should have been the first ones to, to welcome the Messiah, who should have been the first ones to see the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. You see, so there is, a, there is a richness there in Scripture where, which I think is often only partly captured by either one of these approaches by itself. Well, uh, I wanted to leave you a few minutes uh, for questions before uh, you 
go on to your next hour, so this is probably a good time to stop. Could you handle one of those? Yeah, well, uh, uh, <laughs> let's take the Genesis, since I brought that up my, myself. There is, uh, um, now offhand, I can't think of a good book to send you to on the resurrection of the count. There, there are several that have gone, I think Gelden High's commentary on Luke is one that lays things out. This is the order which thing, I think things occurred. Obviously, no one can be dogmatic and gets it all in place. But anyway, let's take the Genesis uh, account. And uh, I think the, uh, the problem is, the part is, uh, is solved mostly by observing the purpose and the scope of each particular passage. Now, I think that they're written by the same person even, but even if you were to concede that uh, the, that, that person used sources, two different accounts. Well, I'll, I'll argue for why there are one, one account uh, as well. In Genesis 1, what you have is a kind of logical organization. Now, it may be chronological as well. The day structure certainly suggests that. But you can see the groupings of the different kinds of creatures. Uh, uh, well, and uh, not only the, plant, the plants in one day, the land animals on another day, and so on. So the picture that's presented, in effect, is of a whole building program that God, and God is pictured virtually as a builder when you see this in the light of the building of the tabernacle. This is God's cosmic house. And uh, he, he builds the different rooms of it, as he were, by separating uh, the, the sea and the dry land and the air and the land and so on. He's got the rooms together and then he fills the rooms with furnishings, with, with inhabitants. And, that, and that's the last three days uh, that you get the furnishings for the rooms, if you will. But at any rate, the thing has that kind of structure, architectural kind of picture, and a picture of dominion, of God's dominion being established and uh, differentiated progressively and leading to a climax then, chronologically at the end, man introduced as God's agent under God to do dominion. Now in the second chapter, everything is related to man. And I believe that the passage then starts out with Adam at the center. Adam is introduced first as the one who's created, not because it was chronologically first, but in order that in terms of God's purpose, you may see how all the rest of creation is geared in to providing a pleasant home for man. It's teleological, if you will, organization. That is organization in terms of purpose. And so at the beginning of chapter 2, uh, what you have, verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth. Uh, I can't argue this in detail. Derek Kidner's commentary uh, argues, I think, very effectively that what this passage is doing is not a second account of creation, but namely erasing the first account, saying, okay, let's go back to the situation after we've heard the whole story. Let's go back to the situation before there was any uh, shrub or plant. No plant, plant of the field had yet sprung up. The Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no man to work the ground before there was any man then. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole face surface of the ground. In other words, everything was wet. 
which is exactly the situation that you've got in Genesis 1-2 at the very beginning. It's water, water everywhere, <laughs> all right? It's not a fitting home for man at that point. And the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. In other words, after I've erased everything and I've gone back to the beginning, now I'm gonna put man in the center. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in Eden in the east. Okay, now I'm gonna make a home for man. So you start with the garden and the focus you see is much more anthropocentric because of that, it's the garden rather than the earth which is the focus. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In other words, here's how they fit into the human being that I created. And then the creation of Eve goes the same way. That's why Adam and Eve are described together as created in the sixth day, you see, in Genesis 1, because it's this logical organization and chronological, whereas in the second chapter, because it's the point of view of what is going to help man in various ways, Eve is created as the one who is suitable helper. You see? So I think there's a beautiful richness there once you recognize what the purpose of each uh, narrative is and how they fit together. I, I think it's the same author uh, partly because uh, <coughs> that Genesis uh, 2, 5, and 6 is in effect washing out the situation, going back to the original chaos situation. It presupposes that you know the account in Genesis 1. Well, that's very briefly. But uh, I'm glad this came up simply because I think it's another illustration of the way in which the kind of bare harmonization where I say, well, willy-nilly, I'll, I'll, my first concern is going to be to, to prove that these things aren't contradictory. You can actually still miss some of the purposes of why things are being said in the order and with the emphasis that they're said. <laughs> yes. Well, it seems to me to be basically chronological in that, in that there is the, the, the logical order that things are set out. It's obviously logical groupings of things, but the logical or order also has a kind of consistency to it in that in order to create the things of the last three days, you want to have a place for them to be, and the first three days, inevitably, uh, they're related to forming the, uh, what I call the rooms of the house. They're related to forming the different places which can be suitable uh, homes for the creations of the last three days. And, and the, then the creation of the last three days obviously presupposes that you have a place uh, for them to uh, suitably exist. So. I think there is chronological order uh, suggested, even though I don't, uh, I don't want to rely too much on the language of days because I know some people have argued that that isn't necessarily chronological. It seems to me to suggest chronology at the very minimum, and it is related to the Sabbath structure <coughs> later on, which is, of course, a chronological structure. So I think it's chronological, but... Um, I think we must again beware of imposing an extra precision on it as if uh, there, there is no room for some kind of exceptions. And, you know, and people who have tried to construct the order uh, have, uh, have said, well, maybe everything wasn't precisely in this order and that I forget uh, what are some of the examples. Yeah, but uh, well, on a day-age theory of Genesis, some of the flowering plants are later than the fish and so on and, and uh, in the order in which they occur in the geologic, geologic strata. 
but uh, you get into some very technical questions there. And I think uh, on that level, your challenge is, well, it is a very real challenge here because on the one hand, you're trying to do justice to what Genesis says. How much does it commit itself to, particularly because it's not written, God didn't write it with the idea of making it as scientifically precise as we might want with our sort of questions today, okay? On the other hand, what he wrote was true. And then on the other hand, how do you reconcile it with what mainstream science or creationist science, because there are alternatives, more than one alternative around to, to what mainstream science is saying. What do you, how do you gear it in with that? And it's a very complicated question, which I can fortunately get off the hook uh, <laughs> on because we're out of time. Let's dismiss uh, officially, okay, because I don't want to keep you. If you have further questions, you can come up individually.